Hollywood makes great headlines. It's actually as simple as that. And the um, House Un-American Activities Committee was uh, seeking headlines. The studio heads in Hollywood are running scared that people might be boycotting their films if they knew that uh, communists had written them or directed them, in some cases starred in them. And uh, it was kind of a, uh, with one director referred to as an unholy alliance. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The anti-communist Red Scare of the 1940s and 1950s spared no corner of the country or the culture. The University of Vermont ousted a faculty member, and the FBI combed the Green Mountains for suspected communists. In Hollywood, ten screenwriters and directors refused to cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, which led a highly publicized witch hunt against supposed communists and, quote, subversives. The Hollywood Ten, as these writers and directors came to be known, used the HUAC hearings in 1947 to denounce the committee. Among them was Dalton Trumbo, one of Hollywood's most successful writers. As a result of their defiance and principled stands, Trumbo and the other members of the Hollywood Ten were convicted of contempt of Congress, fined, imprisoned, and blacklisted from working in the film industry. Trumbo was unable to make a living under his own name for over a decade, though he continued to write scripts under pseudonyms and used other writers as a front. Trumbo's son Christopher later wrote a play, Trumbo, Red, White, and Blacklisted, featuring two people reading Trumbo's letters that he wrote during the blacklist. The play is being performed in Vermont, starting February 11th, in Plainfield, followed by performances in Waterbury Center and White River Junction. It is directed by Monica Callan, and former State Representative Donnie Osmond plays Trumbo. Rick Winston, who is author of the book Red Scare in the Green Mountains, is an advisor to the play. I spoke with Osmond and Winston. Rick Winston, who co-founded the Savoy Theatre in Montpelier, is a scholar of the McCarthy era and has spoken and written widely about the blacklists. I asked Winston how he became interested in the McCarthy era. I became interested because of my parents, very much directly through my parents. They were both uh, New York City school teachers in the in the uh, late 40s and early 50s when they um, nationwide uh, fear of communism that we call either the Red Scare or the McCarthy era came into being, and uh, they were both threatened with the loss of their jobs. Uh, my mother was able to keep hers, but my father um, uh, resigned from his teaching job to go into private business before things got ugly. So when I was a teenager, the, the years after that, um, I uh, found them very receptive to uh, answering questions about what, so what did you go through during these years? So I've always been fascinated by the topic and how the reverberations continue through the years. What was your parents' transgressions that <laughs> caught the eye of someone and who was the someone who uh, re reported them? Yeah, well, um, 
as I said, they were New York City uh, school teachers and the Hollywood and Washington got all the headlines as far as the uh, anti-communist purges that went on. But it happened in many, many uh, different fields and academia was definitely a big one. They, like many of their uh, cohort during the 30s, living through the Depression, they were uh, children of uh, Eastern European immigrants, and uh, like many others, drifted leftward, um, seeking uh, what they thought was a better world, and that involved joining the Communist Party in the 30s, which it has to be uh, drilled home, was not a crime, and it was something that a lot of people did. It, uh, the communists actually ran candidates for um, office, state office, and national office. So uh, when the um, wartime alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union broke down in like 1946-47, uh, those who had been communists were uh, ripe targets for anybody who wanted to uh, rid their organization of uh, troublemakers. Sometimes that meant directly union organizers, as we'll see with uh, Dalton Trumbo. What happened to your parents? You mentioned your father lost his teaching job. What do you recall yeah. of that time? I don't recall that time at all. They put a lot of effort into uh, making sure that we had a normal, normally functioning household. I didn't find out about any of this trouble until 10 years later. Um, but uh, my father opened a very successful art supplies store. They, they, my parents had both been art teachers. He had been named in front of the House on american Activities Committee by one of his former students who grew up to be... Uh, an informer for the committee and a right-hand um, person to Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. Um, so he saw the writing on the wall and uh, left teaching at the end of that school year and uh, opened the art supply store. They didn't get around to my mother for another two years. And by that time, things were slightly easier and she was able to go in front of the uh, Board of Education Investigating Committee and, and say, I will tell you anything you want to know, but I will not talk about anybody else. And that previously had been uh, immediate cause for firing, but by 1956, it was no longer. What kind of thing, as I recall from your previous writings, your your dad was a very beloved art teacher. Mm -hmm. Um what kind of things did this informer, this student, uh, say that he did? Oh, to encourage students to join the uh, young Marxist group or the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the, uh, the, uh, the Young Communist League, um, that he talked politics and talked in favor of the Soviet Union. And uh, my, my father realized that he had made... Uh, a lot of this up. He, this this man who informed on him, his name was Harvey Matuso, and he later uh, came clean with a bad conscience and wrote a book called False Witness about the hundreds and hundreds of people that he named uh, for whom he had made up stories. 
That's remarkable. He he in a sense took on a whole career and persona uh as a a witness, a rat as the, they were called by the mob. A very well-paid rat. Hmm. Um did your father recall this student and that this was his student in fact? Oh yeah. <laughs> was he surprised? Mm -hmm. I mean in later years was your did your dad open up a little more about what the toll was on him and your family. Um, yes, uh, he did. I, I think the thing that always came back was that he really missed being around kids. And he really missed uh, imparting his knowledge. Hmm. But he uh, had, a, had a pretty full life. And um, I didn't hear too many regrets. Take, let's take this, uh, do a McCarthyism 101 here, since you have been a, a lifelong scholar of this, and start, uh, I want to just ask, who was Joe McCarthy, and why did he have such power to essentially, you know, hold the whole government and the nation in his grip? Well, <clears throat> Joseph McCarthy uh, was elected to the Senate in 1948. But nobody really heard of him until 1950. One thing that always surprises people about learning about the Hollywood blacklist is that the uh, the investigations that kicked off the blacklist happened in 1947, three years before McCarthy became a national name. And the, the anti-communist crusade was in full swing. And when McCarthy was looking for an issue to... Uh, to increase his profile, um, that's uh, that's what he chose. And he called this press conference and he said, holding up the piece of paper, I have here the names of, uh, you know, the number kept changing, but I think it was originally 200 um, card-carrying communists in the State Department. The uh, right-wing press was very alive and uh, healthy in those days, uh, the Hearst chain in particular. The, uh, where I live, the New York Journal-American, always quick to give McCarthy a platform. And radio personalities like uh, Westbrook Pegler, who was kind of the Rush Limbaugh of his day. Um, so uh, I think the uh, a lot of institutions out of fear fell in line. And once somebody was named in front of a committee, usually by... Uh, uh, somebody who had been uh, kind of coerced to inform. Uh, then it was up to the various institutions like the schools or in, in, in the Hollywood case, the studios to uh, enforce the blacklist. They didn't, they didn't have to, you know, there were college professors who got to keep their jobs just because the president of the college um, <clears throat> said, you know, I don't care if this professor is a communist, he's a good teacher. But many, many universities, such as uh, University of Vermont in 1953, uh, felt they compelled to fire any teacher who refused to answer questions about their political past. And of course, this is the subject of your book uh, about McCarthyism in Vermont. Um, Talk a little bit about 
how McCarthyism came to Vermont? Oh, uh, that's a we have uh, don't have enough time for that, but um, there were wherever there there were many many McCarthy's all over um, the country. There was just an atmosphere of fear that maybe once you signed a petition that you shouldn't shouldn't have or joined a group you shouldn't have, and people were very scared. So uh, a friend stopped me on the street when I was doing the research for the book Red Scare in the Green Mountains. And she said, well, what I want to know is, were we the good guys or the bad guys? And I said, well, it's not quite so simple um, as the episodes in the book uh, show that there were very courageous newspaper people like Robert Mitchell of the Rutland Herald and John Drysdale, the... Uh, White River Valley Herald, who really stood their ground and pushed back, and that there were other institutions like UVM that caved into the hysteria. What did UVM do? Uh, there was a professor named uh, Alex Novikov, who, um, who was a chemistry professor. And before then, he came to the University of Vermont from Brooklyn College. And while there, was a political activist and he had been named by other uh, teachers who gave names to investigating committees. And uh, so it was up to the, the University of Vermont trustees. Um, you know, they said, we can't have somebody like this on our faculty. And uh, you refuse to answer questions for them. But if you answer them for us, you won't lose your job. And he refused to do that. Um, and the the uh, the trustees actually supported him. But the president then appointed yet another board that included the trustees, but seven other people uh, to fill out the uh, the quorum that was going to give him a, a thumbs down to Novikov. So he left and he uh, became a very honored researcher at Mount Sinai and uh, at Albert Einstein, excuse me, in uh, New York City, which was just getting started then. Hmm. Um, let's move now to the Hollywood 10 and the hearings that, as you note, sort of predated the rise of Senator McCarthy, uh, but the hearings into um, supposed, you know, communist infiltration in Hollywood. What started that? Why Hollywood? Uh, well, um, <laughs> Hollywood makes great headlines. It's actually as simple as that. And the um, on American Activities Committee was uh, seeking headlines. The studio heads in Hollywood are running scared that people might be boycotting their films if they knew that uh, communists had written them or directed them in some cases, starred in them. And uh, it was kind of a, uh, with one director referred to as an unholy alliance uh, between groups like the American Legion, um, the Hollywood Studios, uh, the FBI, and the House and American Activities Committee. So they called hearings to investigate communist influence in Hollywood 
And they lined up a whole bunch of people who ready to testify that, yes, there was communist influence in Hollywood. People like Robert Taylor, the actor, and Walt Disney, uh, Ayn Rand, who um, for a time was a Hollywood screenwriter. And they called 19 people who they knew were not going to cooperate. And uh, why these 19 people? It was, this was a mystery. Um, and it turned out one thing they all had in common was that none of them served in World War II. So they couldn't uh, kind of claim patriotism. Uh, Dalton Trumbo served in a way in World War II as a war journalist. Uh, Alva Bessie, another one of the Hollywood Ten, was a veteran, but he was a veteran of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade who went to fight in Spain uh, against the, the fascists. And the hearings began, as you say, Hollywood makes great headlines, uh, a lot of familiar names. The hearings into the you know communism in Hollywood began with appearances by Walt Disney uh, and Ronald Reagan, who was then the president of the Screen Actors Guild. Um, and Disney said that the threat of communism in the film industry was serious, and he then named people who worked for him as probable communists. Mm -hmm. um, Ronald Reagan, of course, another person who was not a veteran, but claimed that he was uh, <laughs> because he had acted in films as a veteran, um, a perhaps precursor to the George Santos era of fakery. <laughs> um, so with these figures uh, kind of framing it, um, the Hollywood 10 were, for the most part, writers, right? They were writers yes. and producers. Yes, they were writers and directors. Um, out of the 10, out of, out of the uh, the original 19, only one was an actor. And a few were directors. They were mainly writers. And there's another aspect here, too. They were all active union organizers. Mm. And this uh, and Trumbo and others really claim that this whole communist scare was a ploy to destroy the strength of the union, the Screenwriters Guild. And there were at the same time, I mean, there were a lot of people getting swept up in this, being named in the world of the arts and acting. Um People like Paul Robeson and Richard Wright, both, uh, you know, eminent African American authors. In mm -hmm. Robeson's case, also a singer and performer. Uh, but there were some other big names like um, uh, Humphrey Bogart and um, and others who were being named as possible uh, communists, who then had to kind of uh, clear their names. Yeah, they had to backtrack. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, who he had just married, were members of a group called the Committee for the First Amendment, organized by the directors John Houston and William Wyler. There's a whole plane load of Hollywood people who went down to Washington to support um, the, uh, the 19 who were called. Some of them, though, like Bogart, got scared off when they saw how 
uh, how recalcitrant some of these witnesses were. And I don't know what they were expecting, but um, they were kind of surprised that these people were giving the committee such a vociferous hard time. Well, and others, uh, James Cagney, Catherine Hepburn, uh, Melvin Douglas were some of the Hollywood figures who were named alongside Bogart and Lauren Bacall were also being mentioned, also forced to clear their names. So this was a wide net. And, and you know, it's interesting as you recount the history of Joseph McCarthy, he was a very junior senator. I mean, senators who are in there for one or two years, um, it's like Peter Welch, you know, a few months on the job suddenly starts rattling his chains. You know, truth is not too many people would listen. But um, in uh, the case of Joseph McCarthy, a lot of people listened. And he was suddenly the central actor in a national anti-communist drama. Mm -hmm. Which had been uh, percolating ever since the uh, collapse of the the uh, wartime alliance between the U.S. and the USSR. So let's talk about Dalton Trumbo, who is, of course, the focus of the play that you are putting on, Trumbo, Red, White, and Blacklisted. Um, who was he, and how did he become the subject of this play? Trumbo, at the time of the hearings, was the highest-paid screenwriter in Hollywood. So he was a, a very juicy target for uh, the investigating committee. And he had been in Hollywood since the late 30s. And um, uh, he actually, uh, years after, when he said, it, I, um, you know, I didn't really join the Communist Party until 1943, much later than most of the, his fellow uh, Black Lestees. Um, he did it during the war as a gesture of solidarity with our wartime ally, the Soviet Union. Um, so he was a very juicy target um, as far as being a recognized screenwriter and somebody who all the studios knew could do a, a really good job. A juicy target, but you're kind of cutting off your own legs if you're the if you're Hollywood, I mean, this is a guy who's turning out blockbusters and making a lot of money for you. It is true. It's one of the many ironies of this whole, um, you know, the, the, the studios had to make a calculation and uh, uh, losing the talents of these writers versus uh, organized groups like the American Legion who were going to boycott any movie that uh, a communist had anything to do with. Well, let's um, cue uh, up one of the letters from Dalton Trumbo. And what he does in this series of letters is really give us an intimate view of life on the blacklist. It's kind of hard to imagine what it's like to be a public figure who is suddenly banished, essentially dropped from a cliff. Yeah, um, and also somebody who is used to getting top dollar, and all of a sudden there's no money coming in whatsoever. Right. He becomes radioactive. Donnie, could you read us one of Dalton Trumbo's letters? Sure, I'd be glad to. So uh, this one is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, I think I'll just uh, 
repeat that you know the Dalton Trumbo was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Rick, but he helped found the Screenwriters Guild, and this is uh, a letter uh, probably around uh, 1947 or 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 49 before he goes to prison. He writes, "Dear Harry, I have received your letter, presumably." from you as treasurer of the guild, warning that I am now in jeopardy of being placed in bad standing for non-payment of dues. I thought it rather loud and more than ordinarily witless, but to deny you those qualities would be to silence you altogether, and that, for constitutional reasons alone, I should not like to see happen. I can't clearly make out whether your main quarrel is with me or the mother tongue. You have damaged us both almost beyond repair. Please be informed that my contract with MGM has been abrogated, my work has been proscribed, and I myself have been banned from employment in my profession until such time as I perform an act of political purification hitherto characteristic of fascist states. In consequence, my income has ceased, I have no money with which to pay dues, and I am therefore obliged to go into bad standing. Attached herewith my card. And remind us, Donnie, who is he writing to? He is writing to the guy who is presumably the treasurer of the Screenwriters Guild. And thereby, so as you noted, he was one of its founders, and now he's abruptly quitting because he can't afford it anymore. Right. They take away, they take away his livelihood. He has no money. <laughs> and the guy says, well, now you're going to fall into bad standing. Rick, give us a little background on how this play came about. Thank you for the question, because I want to get in the fact that it is not a new play. It might be new to Vermont and new to Plainfield, uh, but it was written about late 90s. It was supposed to be just a one-off benefit reading of Dalton Trumbo's letters organized by his son, Christopher Trumbo. And this was held in Los Angeles. Um and uh, the event was so successful and everybody said, you know, you really should uh, do a play around this because these letters are, they're stunning. They really are pretty amazing. You get to uh, see uh, quite a mind at work. Uh, so Christopher Trumbo uh, got the, with the play together, it ran on Off-Broadway for quite a few years in the early, uh, uh, the, like 2002, 2003, which is where Donnie saw it. Uh, it was made into a documentary film. Um, so um, that that is kind of the, the uh, structure of the play. It's uh, we get to to hear these letters being read. Well, um, Donnie, what strikes you having, uh, you know, immersed yourself in many of these letters about the impact of the being blacklisted on Dalton Trumbo and the impact on his family? Oh, I, 
That's a, a great question, David, because it's really a profound effect, I think, that it's had. I think that the, the, this was, um, I mean, we talked about a little, imagine the devastating blow of going from being the top writer in Hollywood to being, to having nothing, no money, having to borrow everything. And also, um, he is such a sharp mind. Uh, and the through the process of memorization, I have come more and more to appreciate that sharp mind. And it's more than that too, because I mean, one of the letters I'll read is very, very sharp. I was having a, a conversation with uh, a local reviewer and he was saying from what he had known that he might not he might not like Dalton Trumbo as a person that well. And my comment to him was, wait until you see the show, because in addition to how sharp some of the letters are, he's tender and caring and loving. He is. And he talked about all the contradictions that are within people um, and many things. I'm just so impressed um, with this mind. Um, well, let, let's just, uh, have you um, let Dalton Trumbo talk in his own words as he talks about some of the ways it impacted his family. You have a letter from Dalton Trumbo to his daughter's school. I wonder if you could read that. I'd be happy to. To Mrs. Eleanor Barr Wheeler, Principal, Annandale Elementary School. At the beginning of the 1955-1956 school term, we entrusted to your care a happy, healthy, comparatively well-adjusted, and demonstrably intelligent child who loved school, adored her teachers, and enjoyed the friendship of a small circle of contemporaries. Eight months later, you have returned to us a spiritually devastated human being who begs us not to send her to school. I am informed that within the PTA and the Bluebirds, there have been a series of small secret meetings devoted to a discussion of Mrs. Trumbo's character and of mine and what to do about us. Since no one has come to our home to discuss at first hand the problems which so deeply trouble them, we have obviously been tried and condemned in absentia. And the verdict has filtered down from parent to child. Mitzi, who started out the school year with many friends, has found herself in the past three months, the object of the scorn and ridicule of hatred of those whom she liked the most. Small, childish conspiracies are directed against her, patterned in secret after the conspiracies of the parents. And she is quietly and incessantly persecuted and boycotted and shunned as long as the school day lasts. This slow murder of the mind and heart and spirit of a young child is the proud outcome of those patriotic meetings held by a few parents under the sponsorship of the PTA and the Bluebirds. It is a living test 
of the high principles of both organizations. Principles, noble in word, ignoble and savage in application. Principles are what they say. Mitzi is what they do. I should like you to watch how decently and bravely our daughter tries to suppress her bewilderment at her first encounter with barbarism parading as American virtue. Barbarism, which began at your school among adult persons. Now that we have discovered the source of Mitzi's agony, we shall naturally seek competent treatment to rid her of the scars already inflicted. We may therefore employ private tutors, or, as seems more likely, send her to a private school, which has as its objective the encouragement of honor, of friendship, and of learning, rather than their destruction. If it then seems advisable, we shall employ competent counsel and seek a court test of the responsibilities of the school and of school organizations for the mental health of the children entrusted to them. For it is within these school organizations that Mitzi has suffered an assault, that the assault has been on her personality, and that the injury she has sustained is psychic, makes it no less real than if, in a physical sense, the men and women of the PTA and officials of the Bluebird had incited their children to trample her senseless on the blacktop of the playground. Well, I think that's a pretty good example of why Dalton Trumbo was a award-winning, uh, highly paid uh, playwright and, well, not playwright, uh, writer and screenwriter in his day. Um, that that is a, a fine example of the acid pen. Um, but it also speaks to the kind of anguish that his family endured and the way that, you know, the ills of the parents and the sufferings of the parents were rendered onto the children. No one was spared. Do we know, Donnie or Rick, what did he in fact remove his daughter from the schools and send her to private school? Uh, assuming, assuming he did, but Donnie, I do not know. I, I do not know. I would assume so too. Mm. We do know that uh, Mitzi is uh, is quite a renowned photographer, so she found her bearings. Mm. You know, uh, we also um, neglected to say the way, the degree to which Dalton Trumbo suffered. He refused to give, give information about uh, his own or anyone else's involvement and was convicted, uh, as were a number of the writers, of contempt of Congress. They appealed the conviction to the Supreme Court on First Amendment grounds and lost. Trumbo then went on to serve 11 months in the federal penitentiary in Kentucky in 1950. Uh, and he later said in a documentary, uh, Quote, as far as I was concerned, it was a completely just verdict. I had contempt for that Congress, and I have had contempt for it ever since. And on the basis of guilt or innocence, I could never really complain very much. 
that this was a crime or misdemeanor was the complaint, my complaint, close quote. <laughs> um, this is a guy who was uh, fighting to the end. He was jousting against windmills. Rick, I wonder if you could uh, just trace the arc of his career. He did not, in fact, go silent, but he did go nameless. That's right. There was um, a whole underground network in Hollywood of writers who were not blacklisted, but were sympathetic and were willing to give their names as what was called a front for um, somebody who was. So Trumbo would write a script and it would be accepted by the studio and then filmed, but he would not get the screen credit for it. Uh, he actually, the, the, his friend Ian McClellan Hunter, who uh, did, did uh, such a favor for him, won the Oscar instead of Fulton Trumbo for that great classic Roman holiday with uh, Audrey Hepburn. And uh, Hunter was later blacklisted himself a few years later. Yeah, so um, he slaved away during the during the whole 50s. Uh, he lived with his family in Mexico for a few years and then came back to Los Angeles. Uh, he claimed to have 12 different pseudonyms going for his the scripts that he sold. And the irony is that the the studios knew what was going on. They knew that these, they, or at least they had a very good sense that these scripts belonged to Trumbo. And their attitude was, hey, we're getting Trumbo for uh, just a percentage of what we used to pay him. So they were happy to let the blacklist keep going. <clears throat> and his uncredited work won two Academy Awards for Best Story, Roman Holiday in 1953 and The Brave One in 1956, uh, which was awarded to a pseudonym used by Trumbo. Uh, and you mentioned the front writer. Um, interestingly, in the, uh, the revisiting and revisionism uh, around the Hollywood witch hunts and the blacklist, the Academy ultimately did um, announce that it was going to give the award to Dalton Trumbo, but his writer, Hunter, Ian McClellan Hunter, the family uh, refused to give up the actual statuette. Uh, that could be, but the story I heard was that the son of uh, Ian Hunter and, the, uh, and Christopher Trumbo um, both uh, arranged, they they both appeal to have the credit restored on the actual film. So if you see the film today, you will see the credit for Trumbo. Interesting. Rick, how did the Hollywood 10, uh, did the blacklist end? Well, Trumbo had a large role to play in ending the blacklist. Um, he had been hired by Kirk Douglas to write the, um, Kirk Douglas was producing as well as starring in Spartacus and um, hired Trumbo uh, with the understanding that, that this was going to be a pseudonym, Sam Jackson, that Trumbo used, um, that Sam Jackson was going to get credit for the script of Spartacus, big, big budget movie. 
But unbeknownst to uh, Kirk Douglas, Otto Preminger announced he was hiring Trumbo under his own name to write the script for Exodus. And uh, upon hearing that, Kirk Douglas said, well, <laughs> I guess he'll be under his own name for Spartacus too. And that was uh, two of the biggest movies of the late 50s. And with that, Trumbo got his name back and, uh, and a lot of the walls of the Blacklist came down, not all of them, but. So the Blacklist endured from roughly 1948 until 1960. So for 12 years, some of the top writers in Hollywood were deprived of a livelihood. And um, actors too. And yeah, actors. I, I, I don't want to get into the history. I think it went, it, it, they talk in the play, Christopher, the character of Christopher, who's the narrator, speaks in the play uh, towards the end of, of the play um, when it's known that um, Trumbo is going to write Spartacus and Exodus and talks about how the other blacklisted writers after that each had to fight their own battles. So uh, Trumbo was the first to break through the blacklist, uh, but not the final one. There were many after him who had to fight battles uh, beyond 1960, I, I believe. You know, the the taint of the blacklist, it's remarkable how long it lasted, first 12 years, but also the long shadow that it cast because Trumbo was given full credit by the Writers Guild for Roman Holiday. This was his 1956, uh, and I'm sorry, 1953 movie. He was given full credit by the Writers Guild in 2011, almost 60 years mm -hmm. after the fact. Dave, here's another one. I think that he gets the Oscar. He eventually gets the statuette for the brave one somewhere in the 70s. So, you know, clearly this was an issue that the Academy, that Hollywood, it may have ended the blacklisting of names, but it didn't actually fully reckon, uh, you know, have a kind of truth and reconciliation moment. <laughs> for a half century. That is a good way to put it. Um, Trumbo had a great quote um, where he referred to the Oscars as the, the Oscar statue. He says, a worthless golden statuette that is forever tainted by the blood of my friends. Because mm -hmm. he did he did lose friends to early deaths brought, brought on by uh, stress. And in one case, suicide. Hmm. Rick, I wonder if you could talk about, we have a new McCarthyist moment. There's a new McCarthy in town. <laughs> he is the current Speaker of the House, though there uh, is a lot of speculation and uh, uh, about how long he will last since he hangs by the thinnest of threads. What parallels do you see from that era of anti-communist witch hunting and blacklisting and destruction of careers to today? Well, a friend of mine, I thought, put it really well, said that that, that, that fear and hysteria and suspicion <clears throat> are always present in, a, in American culture. And, <clears throat> and the way he put it, it was, sometimes it's really hidden underneath that rock. 
And as soon as the rock is turned over, um, the, it curls out. And I think we saw that during the, uh, the last six years, you know, what was unleashed, the suspicion of people who think differently or look differently um, or have a, have a, <clears throat> a uh, suspicious ideology. So uh, many, many parallels with with today and David, yeah. let me take a crack at that from, from from my perspective. One of the one of the very early letters that I read in the play is a, a letter to a guy named Arthur, um, who apparently through the letter was a, a friend of his, rats him out in some way, either to the committee or um, in some kind of purge of the. Uh, screenwriters guild and trumbo writes him a very long biting letter equally as biting as the letter to the principal and at the end of the letter he says to him look you and i can have no political differences because you have no politics but expediency no standard of conduct but deceit no principle but self-love and when I first read this, I I used to think that people like McCarthy, our current Speaker of the House, or or you, Lindsey Graham, you name these people, I used to think that they had bad politics. But that was wrong. They have no politics but expediency. That's what Trump proved. There was, I mean, Liz Cheney had bad politics, still does, but she didn't, she wasn't just expedient. And I think that those parallels are throughout this show. Um, and it's it's present. Hmm. Donnie, is there one uh, final excerpt, uh, a short excerpt that you sh want to share with us? Yeah, I, I will. Let me read you this one. It's a little it's a little shorter. I, I, it's not the whole letter. <laughs> but um, if you this, just give us a minute or so of it, that would be great. This, paragraph or so okay uh, so the setup is that ring lardner uh sends him uh an early copy of his book um which is uh, uh the ecstasy of owen muir so trumbo writes to him dear ring uh the book has arrived and a preliminary report will go forward to you in about a week I i'm going to violate your injunction in a small way and ask Cleo to read it too. The reason for this, I shall try to make clear. Recently, Albert Maltz finished a rewrite of his book and sent it to us. I read it and found two or three major things I didn't like. Cleo read it and she found two or three other major things that she didn't like. I was so chagrined at having and having overlooked her points with which I at once agreed that I went back to the book, read it most thoroughly again, taking many notes. The result was that our combined efforts found absolutely nothing in the book, except for a couple of minor speeches that we did like. And having gone out of our way for Albert, we certainly wish to do no less for you. <laughs> Okay. And then a very long letter about how he's going to criticize 
<laughs> how he's criticized the book. Three yeah. different methods. Yeah, we should uh, mention that that the letter, the recipient of that letter, Ring Lardner Jr., was another one of the Hollywood Ten. Hmm. Uh, Rick, any final thoughts about uh, what cautionary tale uh, readers, listeners, viewers of the play, uh, Red, White, and Blacklisted, that you hope that they take away from that era as they contemplate this era? I think that the one of the messages of the play is uh, the the importance of standing up for your principles in a time of great fear and hysteria. And uh, Trumbo was just surrounded by people who gave in to, they didn't want to lose their paycheck. Uh, they didn't want to risk shame. Um, they were worried about their reputations. And uh, Trumbo really took a stand. We may di disagree with his politics ultimately, but he saw what the stakes were. And uh, we, we've just seen in the last few years in, in uh, current events how easy it is for, for fear to really drive people to make terrible decisions and how um, standing up for uh, principles is not always the easiest thing to do in uh, when your words get uh, lost in the clamor. Well, Rick Winston and Donnie Osman, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Great show, David.